Take your copy of the scriptures, <clears throat> keep them out, and turn to Zechariah. Zechariah, <clears throat> reading chapter 4. This morning, as we continue through this um, intimidating and difficult uh, at, at times prophet uh, in the Minor Prophets, but before we hear from the Lord, uh, let's go to him in prayer and ask his blessing upon the reading and the preaching and the hearing of that word. Let's pray once more. Our dear Lord God Almighty, we come again before you. We come before you now asking, Lord, give us a spirit of wisdom at this time. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, we praise you for this, your word, to us, your people. And we ask this time that the eyes of our hearts might grasp what you have here to give us. Help us to know the hope to which you have called us, and the riches, the glorious inheritance in the saints, and the measurable greatness of your power at work in and through us, weak vessels of clay though we may be. We pray, Father, give us a hunger for your perfect and powerful word. Help us to put aside all those anxieties and stresses of our frenzied day-to-day lives. Lord, swallow them up, wrap us up in delight and excitement and awe in hearing our precious Savior now. Oh, that we would be challenged and changed and refreshed as your Spirit works through this Word in our hearts and minds. We confess again that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from your mouth. So we ask, Father, give us a great appetite for this, your Word that it may indeed nourish our souls this morning, all to your glory. And it's through the bread of heaven, Jesus Christ, that we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Zechariah, chapter 4. Zechariah, chapter 4, please give your full attention. This is the Word of God. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand lamp of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, the, the, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amidst shouts of grace, grace to it. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice, and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. And these seven are the eyes of the Lord which reigns through the whole earth. And then I said to him, 
What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches on the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord indeed endures forever. Zechariah chapter 4, this message, this vision indeed, speaks of a light shining in the darkness. A light shining in the darkness. As I mentioned earlier, I am excited to be back at home with you, my church family, together. And we return to this wonderful Old Testament prophet, uh, Zechariah. The Old Testament prophets, of course, as we have mentioned, are preachers of Christ, all of them. May we keep that in mind as we work through this book. And indeed, even as we read the word in our private worship and study, uh, this is the word of the Lord, and this word preaches Christ. Uh, Zechariah sometimes confuses, sometimes scares us, sometimes eludes us. Uh, And hopefully you've seen, though, that it is rich and wonderful as we mine the treasures uh, there given to us. It was written, as you will recall, to tell the children of God what would happen when the Messiah came, when he came, when he comes. It is written with much going on in the background historically. Uh, It is important to remember what's going on when it was written as we read uh, Zechariah. Uh, The people of Judah, you will recall, have just come back from 70 years in captivity in exile in Babylon. They are busy at work rebuilding the temple and the city. And God is constantly trying, uh, tying imagery going on all around them in the prophecy of Zechariah, describing what? Describing the city that he would build when the Messiah comes. God does this in the first half of Zechariah. Uh, by giving a series of visions, these seven visions, night visions. You will remember as well the first night vision. It announced that he would destroy, God would destroy the enemy of his people, and he would build his city and build his house. And the second vision picks up on that and elaborates the identity of the enemy, right? the false religions of man that are embodied and typified here uh, by Babylon. And then the third night vision In that vision, God declares that he would rebuild the city, the new Jerusalem, by plundering the house of Satan, by calling the Gentiles to inhabit his holy city. Remember, swelling, city without walls. God himself is the wall and the glory in its midst. And then the fourth vision, right at the center of these visions is the focal point of all of them. And we saw there that Jesus will conquer Satan on the cross will be rewarded with the name that is above every name. The reward of Christ's earthly ministry is the eternal kingdom of heaven. This is what Zechariah is really all about. It's how God will build his kingdom to the fullness through the work of his glorious son. This was all future, of course, from the perspective of those of uh, the original audience. It's all future pointing. This is written hundreds of years You'll remember before Christ, hundreds of years before he comes, before the incarnation. But that long ago, God is telling them what he will do. 
But from our perspective, from our perspective, these things, this is going on right now. Right? Remember Peter's word again, as we heard earlier in our New Testament reading. <clears throat> Peter told us as much. Right? I'll just read verses, uh, 1 Peter 1, verses 10 to 12 again. And listen, this is written more for you than for the original audience. Notice the number of times that it mentions you. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Right? It's very clear that this is written to you. It's for the people of God, right? <clears throat> God wrote these things to help you understand what is going on. You are the intended audience for this prophecy. And it's into that reality that we come. We come the fifth vision in chapter 4, this fifth night vision, which presents two major images as we look at it. It's very complex, and there's lots going on here, and we don't have time to uh, unfold and unpack everything exhaustively. Uh, we'd be here for a very long time, uh, but we won't do that. But we do see these two major images in this fifth vision in chapter 4, and those images are the menorah and the olive tree, right? The menorah and then these two olive trees. The menorah is intended to drive us to what? To the idea of building, again, building that city, building the church, there's very much going on again. This is complex and it is full and we can't dissect all of it here. But we will look at the main point and thrust of what the Lord gives us here. And indeed, it is fantastic and it is glorious and it is edifying. And we'll look here at the menorah primarily and the lamps, the, the, uh, or lampstand, the menorah, the menorah or the lampstand. And as we break it down, we see that the main point here really is that vision 5 of Zechariah's night vision, presents a picture of the Messiah building the house of God by the Spirit of God. Right? It's a picture of the Messiah building the house of God by the Spirit of God. And so let's look at this menorah. Right? What is the menorah or lampstand? We see that it is not like a candle stand, a candlestick that you put on your mantle, but the menorah is something different than that. Um, and this is what Zechariah sees, a single lamp patterned after a tree, right, with the main trunk and three branches on either side of it, making a total of seven points. There's one stand with seven lamps on it. And each of these seven lamps has bowls or places for oil. Each of these had seven lips or spouts is what it means for the oil to sit in. They had no wicks. There was a little place for the oil to be uh, to rest and to be lit. And each of these seven lamps had seven spouts, again, slots where the oil was exposed so it could be lit and burn and give light. And as we look at this, we look at the numbers going on here, the description that Zechariah gives us that he's given. Uh, we see that uh, math, right, Hebrew math is the same as our math. Uh, and so that's how many lights individually? It's 49 individual lights on this menorah. Right, again, it's, it's not a normal small lampstand that you you'd use when the power goes out. This is a big thing. It's very impressive, this menorah. 49 flames coming off of this menorah. It's a super menorah, 
It's an uber lampstand that would create a great amount of light with the purpose of what? Of shining forth a beautiful and powerful light in the darkness. And notice that it is tied to the tabernacle or the temple. Right? And for the Jewish reader, as he hears this, this imagery was not new. This is familiar imagery to him. The menorah was part of the furnishings, of course, of the tabernacle or the temple. It's part of what's a piece of the furniture that was there, that was given there and, and, and commanded to be used in the tabernacle, later in the temple. And God is here resuming the imagery of building a house in which to dwell. Right? This, is a, this is something that, that occurs throughout these visions. And also we see the recurring mention of Zerubbabel. It was not lost on the hearers either. It's not the first mention of this individual. As the city and the temple were being built, there were two prominent names overseeing this work. We read about this and we heard this in Haggai chapter 1, where it said, the word, this is the word of the Lord to Joshua, the high priest, and to Zerubbabel, the governor. You shall rebuild my house, the Lord says. Right? So you have these Joshua and Zerubbabel, and they had a ta the task of rebuilding the temple. Uh, Joshua played a prominent role in that fourth vision that we saw um, two weeks ago, right? Remember, he, had, he was on trial, he had dirty clothes, filthy garments that needed to be uh, taken off and he needed to be given clean garments. But now we see Zerubbabel. He plays a prominent role in this fifth vision um, of Zechariah. And the function is made clear in the language of the plumb line that he uses in verse 10. Even in verse 9 we see this. He shall lay the foundation, the foundations of the house. Right? And so this imagery drives us to the building of the house. Right? And it connects the menorah to the temple through Zerubbabel, the builder of the temple. Right? And so this fifth vision is about the building of the temple, pictured here in this menorah, this super menorah, this bright and glorious light shining. And remember, too, the temple that Zerubbabel was actually building was only a picture, right? It was a picture of what God was actually interested in. Just like in the second and third visions, we saw Babylon and Jerusalem, right? They looked past their earthly counterparts. And so, too, the menorah looks past its earthly counterpart beyond itself. And so we have to ask, what is, the, what is it that interests the Lord here? Which temp temple is being pictured by the menorah? What is this pointing to and a picture of? Is it that super? Is this super menorah drawing up the image of that temple of old, the glorious Solomonic temple? As the light shone forth in the night, as God's glory gave the light to the priests who ministered in that windowless uh, temple on behalf of the people? Is that what it's pointing to? Or is it pointing to the temple that Zerubbabel is building in this post-exilic period? Or is it pointing even beyond that? Right? Remember again, Peter's words to you. These are written for you. Right? And we have to consider as well other places in God's word that talk about these things. For instance, uh, Revelation chapter 1. It says, As for the ministry of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, Seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands 
are the seven churches. Right? And so we see this connection here. We have the lampstands or menorahs identified with the churches. With the churches. So here's a picture of the church, the house of God. That's no surprise. What is in view here is Zechariah is the building of the church. Right? The building of the church. And then next we have to look at what is the function of the menorah. What's the function of this thing? Why did God choose the menorah to represent the church in this passage? What is the significance? What is the meaning here? Well, it's fitting because of the temple and the tabernacle imagery, and it's identified with the temple that the Messiah will build when he comes. But the temple had, as you recall, other furniture. There are many pieces of furniture there. It's not just the menorah. And so why does God choose that piece of furniture in this passage over the other furnishings? Well, the answer, the answer is in the description of the menorah itself. Right? This chapter takes time to tell us how many points the menorah had, what it looked like. Right? Seven times seven, 49. And it was the source of light in the darkness for the priests. And they tended to it in the morning and they relit it at night. And it shined in the night and it reflected God's glory through the hours of darkness. This is the purpose it served, to shine into the darkness. Shine into the darkness. And by this we can see why the menorah is selected to represent the church, the building of the church. God is giving us a picture of the church that is a light that shines in the darkness, that shines into the darkness. Our Lord himself declared this in his earthly ministry, you'll recall. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Even Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians, for you are children of light. Children of the day, we are not children of the night nor of the darkness. So this theme of light and darkness, it's intimately tied to your identity. Dear Christian, your identity as one who belongs to Christ. And in fact, you're coming to Christ. Your new birth is described precisely in those terms. right? Remember Peter. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. And this is what it meant to come to Christ, to come out of darkness and into his marvelous, glorious light. Notice what Peter said, right? It's not just enough that he said to come out of darkness. Right? This has been done for a reason. And that reason is what? That you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of that darkness. That you might proclaim his excellencies. And if you are light, you must shine as light. Not hiding your light under a bushel, bushel or under a basket. And so this menorah uh, imagery of light shining into darkness not only shows us who you are in Christ, but also that you are to call others out of darkness into light. Right? Consider 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. It uh, gets at this as well. It says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Right? Beautiful, glorious. 
And how are we to do that? To call people out of darkness and into light. The Lord is building the kingdom. And part of this is the witness, not only of our lips, right, with our mouths, but also the witness of our lives before a watching world. The act of shining forth into the darkness, of being a light to the world, is part of all that you are. It's part of all who we are and all of what we do. And notice also as we look at the menorah, what is imaged here. The menorah is not a laser. Right? It's not a laser. It did not shine a concentrated, narrow space. Its light goes everywhere. It goes everywhere, right? And so Paul uses the imagery, the imagery of light to describe the principle that lies behind the entire Christian life. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We need to be careful that we don't miss this. Miss that it describes the whole Christian life. Again, I'll quote Peter once more. He says, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct holy among the Gentiles, honorable, so that when they speak evil against you, they may see your good deeds and what? And glorify God on the day of judgment. They may see and glorify Him. Your whole life shines before them that they may come to Him on the day of judgment. This is a difficult thing. What oh, is a difficult thing? But it's a possible thing, right? It's possible through the work of the Holy Spirit working through His people. That is you. And so Peter says that one of the greatest things you can do to be a light in the darkness is to live as a pilgrim or an exile in this world and not be controlled by the lusts and passion of this life. First Peter 3, Peter also, he says, in speaking of women with unbelieving husbands, remember, this discussion he has. He says that the greatest tool that they have for winning their husbands is their conduct, right? Is their conduct. A godly life, submissive conduct, as God intended. And the greatest thing they could do for their unbelieving husbands to show forth Christ is to submit humbly and to serve. One of the greatest things you and I, dear Christian, can do to witness the truth of the Lord, of our Lord, is to get our bearings straight and to set our affections on above things, right where God is, and live lives of holiness and submission. And stop seeking to be served, but to serve those around us with humility and gentleness, and long-suffering and patience and tenderness. Right? It's not vague in Scripture. Right? It means to stop seeking to be served and start seeking at every opportunity that we have. It's, our call. it's His call on our life. And you know, when we grumble and complain, and when we kick against all the pain and sufferings that we go through and all the hardships that we go through, what are we claiming to the world? What are we declaring to the world? That this world is your home and you're looking for your inheritance here in this world. And the world looks upon you and it sees no difference from the world. And it sees no reason to abandon what they already embrace. 
But when we patiently endure, endure with Christ, we testify what? That our hope is not in this world. It is beyond. And that speaks into the hearts of those in whom the Lord is working. Because they're looking for a home outside of this world as well. As he works in them and leads them and draws them and changes them and gives them life. Even as he gave us life. So how contrary is this to the lie that so many churches tell our culture, uh, tell in our culture who think that evangelism comes by parading people who have worldly success before us, right? Celebrities or sports uh, stars or what have you. Do we really care how far they can throw a football or how fast they can run? They seem to have everything they need in this world. I don't. I can barely move sometimes. It's excruciating sometimes to merely get up from a chair. We need a different inheritance. We need an inheritance that is far, far greater than this world could ever give us. Witnessing to the world doesn't come from showing identification with this world, but from abandoning it. At least abandoning the, 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 the urgent tether to this world that we are so drawn to and conditioned to do. And so as we continue looking in Zechariah 4 and this vision, we have to look briefly next at the source of the menorah, right? We saw the function of the menorah, shining light, glorious light into the darkness. And now we look at the source of the menorah. It's no accident, right? There's continuity and there's a thread throughout. There's no accident that Zechariah opens the book opens uh, in chapter 1 with a mention of the myrtle trees. right? The myrtle trees. Remember, they're related, associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. And now it's describing the church as the menorah, which was also central in the Feast of Tabernacles. Right? Each night during this feast, um, a 50-foot menorah was lit to light up the night, to shine into the darkness. Right? This is... Not a, not a weird burning man type of thing. Long before, right, this 50-foot menorah was lit to light up the night. And the people were taught simultaneously to what? To confess that they are pilgrims and sojourners in this world and that they were a light shining into darkness. These aren't two different realities. To be a sojourner and to shine into darkness, right? They're not different things, Rather, by confessing that, they are, that their inheritance is not in this world, they shined as lights of heaven. By doing that, by letting goods and kindred go, right? remember the hymn, by letting goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, they were what? They were shining a light for a watching world to see. And that's not to deny the importance of the spoken word of preaching, of professing, professing, the faith, right? Romans 10 is very clear. Preaching is imperative. Preaching is what God uses to call people to faith. But what Zechariah 4 is driving us to uh, is our call to live before a watching world as children of light, shining light into the world of darkness, all the while knowing that God is using that to call people to faith by testifying with their lives who they are, who they belong to, and for whom they are living. 
verse 6, the church, it says, the church that is God's kingdom is not built by our strength. Right? It says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. By my spirit. The menorah, you see, is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. The word of the Lord that the menorah is, is not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. God will build his church in its fullness, the fullness of his kingdom, and nothing is going to stop that. Jesus said what? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he is not dependent on your strength or your power or your might to do so. God's spirit will bring forth the light to shine in a dark world. Notice also here, the church is called a lamp. Right? Not a sun, but a lamp. A lamp has no light in and of itself. Right? It's completely dependent on its oil and the bowls without which it fades into darkness. Once the oil runs out, there's no light. So it's dependent on the oil streaming from those two olive trees on either side. Verse 12 talks about the golden oil. What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured? Right? Oil, in Scripture, often, very often represents the Holy Spirit. And so it does here as well. Right? Remember the anointing in the Old Testament. Oil pouring down, typified the pouring out of the Spirit. And we connect that with what we just said about the source of the building, right? Not by might or power, but by my spirit, he says. You see, the church's ability to shine in the world is completely dependent on the spirit conforming the church to the image of Christ, right? It is this task of the spirit. The spirit of God will cause the light to shine through the church as the church is made more and more like Christ, and there's another aspect of this that we must confess as well. Right, listen, listen to this. It's, this also means that the church, like Christ, will suffer in this world. The church, like Christ, will suffer in this world. Right? We have been ordained. It's been appointed for us to believe, also to suffer. Also to suffer in this world. And as the menorah is shaped like a tree, fashioned after a tree. The church must be conformed to another tree. Right? The cross. The cross of Christ. If it is going to be conformed to Christ himself. And in that, the light of the gospel will shine forth in power and in certainty. Effectively. Certainly. And this is one of those strange paradoxes of Scripture. You are at the same time presented as what? As one who will be weak and persecuted and homeless, right? In exile and cast out in the world. And one through whom the light of heaven will shine forth. You were told to build the church in witness and in evangelism. You were told that you can't do it, but that the Spirit must do it. These aren't contradictions. It's what it means to be a citizen of heaven. 
citizen of glory, to belong to the kingdom that Christ is building. And so you, exiles, living in a dark world, you are the menorah, shining light in this world. You are to live your life before a watching world as those who belong to Jesus. To live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, not being enslaved to the passions of this fleeting and temporary reality. Let your life shine as testimonies, as witnesses that your treasure is stored up there and not in the things below. Out of that reality, brothers and sisters, invite people to come, to come to church, that they can hear the word of God proclaimed and be confronted and consoled and challenged and refreshed. And as you have opportunity, use your words to tell people about Jesus Christ and the hope that is in you because you belong to Him. You are His and He is yours. You know, I used to work with a man who had incredibly significant uh, health issues, very bad problems with his spine. And many of his coworkers knew about the problems and the suffering that he went through. <clears throat> This terrible suffering and pain. And one morning I remember one of the, our managers asked him, kind of snidely, but maybe a bit of authentic curiosity. The manager asked this man, why are you always smiling? And the man said, I belong to Jesus. And I know that one day all of my problems will be gone forever. And even now, Christ is preparing me for that. What a testimony. What a testimony to those around. You see, the testimony of life brought the testimony of his lips to follow. As you embrace the kingdom of Christ and are confronted and conformed to the cross, as you suffer pain and persecution and affliction, because this world is not your home, as you do so, your light will shine forth. And that will be a powerful testimony to the world that the Lord will use. Oftentimes the Spirit works in ways that we don't expect. And these things are not a future reality for you as it was for this original audience. The consummation, the fulfillment, the finality of it is. But these things are not altogether future like they were for those in Zechariah's time. The church is being built today into the kingdom of God. And the results from the destruction of Satan is what it is, the plundering of his house as the gospel goes forth in triumph and victory. You are proof that you, not Zerubbabel, are building the house of God by the power of the Holy Spirit going forth into the world. Therefore, shine in a dark world as children of light. Shine, pilgrims. Shine, your citizenship is in glory. You are citizens of that glory. Shine as children of light, as the new creations that you truly are. Again, time will not allow us to go into all that is here and how Christ is the one who fulfills these two trees. There's a connection between Joshua and Zerubbabel and Aaron and David, the priest and king, and Christ fulfills both of those things. But let's not get lost 
in the wonderful and complex and yes, sometimes distracting glory and transcendence of it all, of all these amazing and glorious visions and imagery, though we can. And let's be honest before the Lord of glory, whom we love and live for and long to be with forever. We are, by the presence and power of the Spirit, building the holy house of the Lord as He uses you to advance the gospel in this fallen and destitute world. Weak vessels like you and I, it doesn't make any sense on an earthly level. But it makes perfect sense for an all-powerful and holy and just and mighty God to do so. We are children of light, made to shine the light of Jesus into an inky, black, dark world. But maybe, maybe you, like me, are thinking in the back of your head, and you're thinking, in all of my failing, in all of my disappointing mess-ups, maybe you, like me, are thinking honestly, and sadly, and discouragingly, I don't shine like the stars. I don't shine like this glorious super menorah. I scarcely, if at all, shine. I'm like a dim, barely visible match that's been blown out. I do not suffer, suffer well. I do feel addicted to this world. Tethered, bound, shackled to this world and to my sin at times. It's overwhelming. And the things I struggle with darken my heart and darken my spirit. How can I at all be shining into anything? But take heart, brothers and sisters. Take heart. The Lord is shaping you, even as He is shaping me. And He is growing us. And He is working out His plan in your lives for your good and for His glory. Throw yourselves to Him again and anew and again and again and afresh as a reflexive response and a habitual reaction in your lives. Yes, in your failures and in your weaknesses. Be filled and strengthened by Him. Look to Him and His great love for you. Focus not on your weakness and your failings. Away from yourselves. Look to Christ. And as you see that in His great love for you, He has rescued you from great disaster. And love and gratitude and thankfulness, as you do so, will well in your hearts. And He will grow you. It's His promise to you. It's His promise to you. You will grow to delight in living for Him. And even, yes, in telling others the story of His saving your life. You know, this is a time right now, like no other time in my life anyway, where people are gripped with fear and confusion. Many people are terrified at the things going on in the world. <clears throat> Maybe you are terrified and full of fear as well the things going on in the world right now. But you know, you have an opportunity to go to these people, even as you go to your own heart, and with authority, 
tell them where peace is found. Right? Tell them where peace and freedom is found, where it is alone found. Because it is not found in, found in this world, or in politics, or in the government, or in revolt, or in violence, or money, or any other thing. It is alone found in Christ. In Christ. He will strengthen you. In your weakness, in your depression, in your angst, and in your frustration. He will strengthen you, dear Christian. As you give yourself over to Him, and you pray for the faith and the trust to believe Him. He will grow you to find your life for Him as precious. As precious. And He will grow to delight. He will grow you that you will delight in telling others of the truth of how He took a miserable sinner like you and me and gave us life. Life from the dead. Be bold, dear Christian. Step out and do so. Make the invitation to come where life is found, where the word of the Lord, the word of life is proclaimed, and the warmth of his people are present. And his promise is that his elect will come, and they will hear the gospel, and they will respond. The inheritors of the kingdom of heaven are those who live in this strange land a cruciform life. Right? That is a cross-shaped life, like their Savior and King did. And they will live with Him in glory after they live with Him here in this in-between time. A time where He does carry you, and He does cause you to shine into the darkness of this world. Glorious. So may you, the church, the menorah of God, in boldness shine forth for His glory as he strengthens you by his power. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you praise. It is our delight to do so, to give you praise, to glorify you. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would continue to work in us your will, that you would continue to strengthen our faith, Lord. We believe, help our unbelief. Lord, help us to be honest and authentic before you. And acknowledge that we are indeed weak. Give us the strength that is not our own, that is yours. Encourage us. Help us to believe what you say about us, that we are indeed dead to sin and alive to walk in newness of Christ. Lord, help us to walk in newness of life in this world. Help us to live lives to your glory in love, that the outside world would look and see our peculiarity in wonder. Why are you always smiling? That they would ask and we could tell them the truth of the gospel. Father, we pray that you would be with us now for the remainder of this service. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.